This week's episode is brought to you by the Hulu original series, The Handmaid's Tale, for your consideration. Time Magazine raves, The Handmaid's Tale is masterful, and IndieWire proclaims Elizabeth Moss commands each and every moment. All episodes now streaming only on Hulu. Coming out of the fall film festivals this year, the one film that checks all the boxes is Guillermo del Toro's The Shape of Water. We've always known del Toro as a master fantasy and genre storyteller with such movies as Hellboy, Pacific Rim, and Pan's Labyrinth, which was nominated for six Oscars and won three in art direction, makeup, and cinematography. The Shape of Water is certainly another movie in del Toro's wheelhouse, that of a monster movie. But Shape is so much more. It's a love story, it's a silent film, all with a sublime performance by Sally Hawkins as Eliza, a mute cleaning lady in a top-secret government facility who bonds with their latest discovery circa the 1962 Cold War, a sea monster. The Shape of Water marks the third collaboration between Del Toro and Danish cinematographer Dan Laustsen, a relationship that goes back to the director's 1997 movie Mimic. Lautzen is here with us today on Deadline's Crew Call. Tell me about meeting Guillermo. What year was it? Where were you in your career? And what was it? What film did he see? Were there, was there a collection of your films that he saw from no, over in Denmark? I was shooting Nightwatch, my first American movie. And I think it was 96 or something like that. Uh, so we shot Nightwatch with, with the Weinstein Bros. We shot it here in L.A., and the YC brothers come to me one day and say, you know, um, we love what you're doing. It's always nice when they love what your work. And they said, you know, we have another movie we want you to do. So you have to meet the director. Uh, and he's from Mexico. He's Guillermo del Toro. And it's okay, I didn't know anything about him. So we went out for coffee. And, you know, I was super stressed out because of my first movie. You know, I was very nervous and stuff like that. And we worked a lot. So our first meeting, I remembered like that, our first meeting was not so well. You know, the first time we met, you know, because I was stressed out, you know, and then we met second time, Guillermo and me, and it was like, you know, wow, this is amazing, you know. Then we just talk about movies, you know, the way to shoot, and, you know, we just, we didn't fall in love, but, you know, it was was clicking really, really well. Uh, And then, you know, a half year later, something like that, I was standing in, Toronto and prep mimic with him. What what films were you talking? I can imagine what films you were talking about because it's Guillermo. But I mean, what what films were you actually talking no, we, about? You know, I saw Crono, his first movie. I think that was his first movie. I saw that. I was very impressed about the style and you know all the camera movement and you know the atmosphere. I loved that very much. And you know, I'm not afraid of the darkness, and he's not afraid of the darkness. So we we like this shattering stuff, you know, and. Um, we spent a lot of time, of course, to prep that on Mimic, and of course, I was nervous to get fired every day because it was pretty dark, you know. And but uh, you know, we went well. It was a tough movie. Mimic was a tough movie to do, but that was a late. Of course, we did that late on. How has he changed as a director in terms of? Because this is your third your third film with That's him correct. after uh, after Crimson Peak. Yeah. How has he changed? Because you came back to him yeah, much no, later in his career. Yeah, I went back. I didn't see him for maybe 18 years or something like that. And then I spoke with him now and then on the phone because of crew, you know, he was shooting a lot in Budapest and Prague and, you know, I called him and said, you know, what about that guy and what about that guy? So we have a little bit contact, but we never met each other. 
uh, we was always crossing each other, you know, we never saw each other for 18 years or something like that. And then I went to Toronto and I met him or we met each other and, you know, he was like, it was like we met two hours before, you know, we was exactly the same, you know, we have a lot of fun, you know, we have exactly the same kind of humor and the same kind of, you know, the way we love movies, you know, it's so important when you're finding that with a director. Of course, on Mimic, he was a young guy and he got a lot of problems on that movie, you know, because the studio wanted to do one movie, he wanted to do another one, there was a lot of a lot of stuff going on uh, and people were tough with him and now, of course, now he has a much more big experience and uh, but he's still the very, very, he's the nicest guy on the planet and he's a movie lover, you know, that's what I think is amazing, he just loves to make movies, he loves to be in the set, he knows everybody, you know, he's one of those guys, he know, knows the Gaffers or the second Sparks wife's names, you know, and it's he's just a lovely person. And of course, he has much more experience now and much more power. So, you know, but he's still, uh, for me, he's still the same movie loving director. Now, Doug Jones found out on the set of Crimson Peak that about Shape of Water. He, he told us in an interview that, you know, Guillermo brought him into his office and, and pitched Doug on what it was going to be, and Doug was blown away. Was that the same thing? Was that the same scenario for you? Did you learn during, while you were shooting Crimson Peak? Like, yeah. hey, I have... Yeah, he talked about this story about, you know, it's a story about the girl that can't speak. He's falling, she's falling in love with a guy that's a kind of a fish creature. And he's like, okay, this is a weird Guillermo del Toro movie. Uh, and then he talked about we should shoot in black and white. And of course, I was like blowing away because all the cinematographers in the world want to shoot monochromatic black and white. Uh, so he wanted to shoot fire breathing black and white that because was, I know on um, on the George Clooney film uh, that that George did um, the Edward R. Murrow movie, they shot that in color. Yes, and then they did it I, in, 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 in the post-edit. Exactly. They switched it to black and white. Yes. Because it's easier to manage, I think, the monochromatic of it. No, the monochromatic, there's no way back. You know, if you're shooting black and white, you're shooting black and white. And I think that's a money issue. And that was the reason we didn't do it because, you know, I'm not into all that stuff with the money, but I'm, there was a reason we bailed away from it, you know, we won't, because we couldn't find the money. I think the people that have to finance it was getting nervous. Or, you know, I don't know exactly how it works, but if you're shooting monochromatic, it's like shooting old days black and white. There's no way back. And of course, that's scary for everybody. But if you're shooting black and white, you know, we want to do it like the real black and white. So, you know, you have to design the colors so the color looks correctly in black and white. Uh, but we didn't do that. So when he first spoke about the movie to you, what... What was he talking? I mean, what was he throwing out homages? Uh, it's a monster movie, but it's more than a monster movie. It's a love story and a silent film. Yeah. No, he told me about it was a love story. It's not a monster movie. It's a love story with a guy that's a fish. It's For me, it's not a monster movie at all. It's like a really, really fantastic, beautiful love story. And by the way, one of the guys, the guy is a fish. So I think that's that's fantastic, and it's when you've seen the movie, I, I think it works so amazing. You know, you really believe that. Now, 
As far as inspirations go, did you talk about anything? Did you talk about it's shot largely in a in a bunker. It's the Cold War. There's a lot of greens, you yeah. know, in the in the in the in the in the scenes in the in the apartment in in the in the bunker. There's a lot of greens. There's a lot of browns. Uh, was there anything that he was referencing photo-wise, picture-wise? No, when we decide to go away, I don't know exactly when that's happening, go away from black and white, you know, it just feels like pretty clear we couldn't, we couldn't do it. And, you know, going back to that version where you're shooting in, you're shooting color and you're doing the black and white in post we didn't want to do that. And Guillermo definitely didn't want to do it, you know, and I agree about that. So we talked about the color palette because we was coming from Crimson Peak and that was very red and very colorful. So we still want to do color, but we want to do it more like steel blue greens and have a very little portion of red in the movie. So that was the color palette, you know, and that was, you know, Guillermo was very, very keen about colors. So I'm sure it was coming from him. And red is used for love, and it's used exactly. for blood. Yeah, exactly. That's the only two times you see red in the movies, love and blood. And the rest is like green, steel blue, neutral colors. But, you know, uh, and he's very keen about colors. So, you know, it was coming from him, of course. And when everybody was cooperation together, the production designer, the wardrobe, me. And, you know, we were was, we was spending a lot of time to find the right colors. You know, we paint the colors of the walls down and, all, you know, was there symbol story-wise, symbolically, did it mean, did did certain colors mean? I mean, like red meant something, yeah. But did did the greens and the blues and the no, blues? not as far as I remember. We just like this, you know. It's a good color for that period of of uh, of time, uh, and it's, it looks beautiful, you know. So now you're shooting these silent scenes, these scenes between Eliza and the monster. And um, what what's key in, in shooting silent scenes? Is it is it do you get really close up? Do you step back just enough to see everything? What what was key? I think you know. I don't think we was putting too much attention to that part of the story. You know, we was telling the story the way Gamer liked to tell the story, very moving camera. You know, we did that already on Mimic. You know, so. Our whole background is moving the camera, you know, single light sources, big contrast, you know, but the actors have to look beautiful. And that was very important for for us, at, especially Sally looks amazing all the time, as she, as she does. I think she looks like a princess. And, you know, of course, it's not always easy to have a female actor look like a princess four o'clock in the morning, but, you know, we... So we went back to a little bit old-fashioned lighting, you know, camera light, you know, just to just above the camera, you know, just to blend it all a little bit out. But we never went into that flat Hollywood style, you know. We was always single source lighting, um, but it was very important for us. All the actors looks beautiful and the guys looks tough. Now, I'm going to jump to the to the, the wondrous love scene in the movie in the bathroom, where they fill up the bathroom to the brim and create their own aquarium. Yeah. I was reading something where you would shoot it both ways. You shot it in a tank, and you also shot wet, dry. Talk about that. We shot that sequence when 
And I love that sequence when she's leaving the room, she's leaving the bathroom, she's coming out there, standing against the door and says, you know, no, I'm going back to this beautiful guy, creature. Uh, and so when she's coming back, the, the first part of that, we shot that in, at the set, at the studio. But then the rest of the scene, we shot that in the tank. We built a very small tank because, you know, we have to remember this is a pretty small movie, you know. We we didn't have a lot of money, so we have to be very clever about what we did. So we was pretty. We just have to be smart how we we spent the money. So we was building a very small tank, for that part, in the bathroom. So that's shot wet for wet. Uh, and we have a, some doubles there, you know, when we're shooting from behind, you know, we have a, a stunt double. Uh, and when we are shooting Sally, of course we are shooting Sally. But that's all. That's that sequence is shot wet for wet. But the end sequence, when that jumping into the ocean in the end of the movie, that's shot dry for dry for wet. And, w- and why was that? Was it strictly for budget, or I think it was budget wise we couldn't afford the big tank, you know, and we was afraid we couldn't, you know, Sally could not perform in the water. It's so difficult, you know, and that sequence is very long. This week's episode is brought to you by the Hulu original series, The Handmaid's Tale, for your consideration. Time magazine raves, The Handmaid's Tale is masterful. And IndieWire proclaims, Elizabeth Moss commands each and every moment. All episodes now streaming only on Hulu. So explain shooting dry to look wet. How how do you you achieve, is is it just a lot of? It's a lot of smoke. First of all, it's a lot, lot, lot of smoke, like insane of main amount of smoke. And then, you know, you have to have the light to move around. So we shot the key light is coming from film projectors. So the light is moving around a little bit. The light is not static. So we made a gobo and put that into a computer and the computer is feeding that into the film projector. So the key light is coming from a film projector. So the light is moving around a little bit. So it looks like you have the light coming from the surface. And then you have a fans and you have wires and stuff like that. Uh, and then you're adding bubbles and all this kind of element later on. And Mr. X did that in Toronto and they did all the, the visual effects shot and they did a fantastic job, I think. But that is shot, the whole end under the water is shot dry for dry and then for. And, then, and then VFX comes in and does Come, kind yeah. of like a, a fine tune? Yeah, for sure. Got it. The hair is moving a little bit around, you know, start off, you know, it's, it did a lot of work there as well, but it, it's, we shot it dry for, dry for wet, and it what works I, really well. What I found fascinating, Doug told me that uh, it wasn't a CGI costume. No, it was a, it was real, a real, yeah, it was a it, real costume. It was totally real. Yeah, that add a little bit CG later on, you know, because the eyes cannot blink in the CG. So they put all that stuff in the eyes is blinking, that's CG, and some of the fins is CG as well. And in the beginning, you know, when the creature, when the fish have a good time, you know, he's glowing a little bit purple, blue-purple. And we tried to do that with the UV light in the beginning because they put that in. But it was we couldn't control it correctly, so they put that in CG as well. So does, does Guillermo ever reference movies? Like, I know Quentin's big on this with his movies, like, you know, and, and Martin Scorsese, too. When they have the actors and their crew around, they'll show certain movies during production, they'll reference certain movies. Is Guillermo, is, is Guillermo like a, that? A little bit, but not too much. He's always showing me some, like, 
weird Japanese movie. And what is that supposed to do with something? But you know, he's doing that a little bit. Of course, we see some. You know, we we did that when we did Crimson Peak. He showed me a black and white movie. I said, okay, great, thank you. <laughs> but he did that, and um, but we're talking the same language. We're talking about the movie and the look all the time. But he's he's doing a lot of concepts, drawings, you know, color wise, and um, and um, yeah, layout for the for the production designs. But he was never talking like creature of the the Black Lagoon or anything. No, like that. I've never seen that movie. I heard a lot about it later on, but never seen it when we, when we started. Now, uh, what was your most challenging scene to shoot? Was it in fact the water tank? I think scene? the water tank was very difficult, but I think the end move, the end part of the movie, on the, on the pier, was really difficult. You know, when they're standing there in the rain. You know, because what we have, we were shooting that pretty late in the year. And it was freezing cold, so we have to rain with hot water, because sadly it was just getting so cold. And you know, when you're pouring down with red water, with uh, warm warm water in uh, in like close to zero, you know, you get a lot of steam and mist. And we have a lot of problems with that because when the hot water is hitting the rain deflectors on the cameras to keep the rain away from the cameras, we're getting mist there. And we have so bad weather. We was fighting the weather a lot there, you know. So that was that was really a challenge because it was rain, raining, raining some of the days for real, and we have a big thunderstorm passing by. So we have some serious troubles there. Now remind those who haven't seen the movie yet. Where 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 did you shoot? In Toronto. And then how many production days was it? More we, or less. I think we shot for fifty eight days. And what, how was it? I mean, was that typical with Crimson Peak? Was it? It was a smaller budget than Pink, much smaller budget. I think it was half, more or less half of the budget from Crimson Peak. You know, I don't know exactly the numbers, but it was a much, much smaller movie. And what's his pace like as a director? Is he a guy that likes to shoot fast? Does we, he take his time? We are shooting as fast as possible, but he takes his time. He takes the time he needs. But he's, we are shooting fast, I would say. You know, we are shooting single cameras. We are shooting 25 setups a day. And we are never making a master. We are, you know, all the setups is like a new setup. So given the... And we are changing the light all the time. Given the complexity of this film, its complex look, um, the scenes, the blocking, uh, does he does he run a rehearsal? Or, or is it... Or does he storyboard any particular sequences? Uh, he has his own storyboard. You have his small black book he's coming to the set with every day, and you know. But he's we are not. He's not. We're not doing storyboards as we you know publics. He he makes his own small notes and he has a shot list. He, he's keeping it from himself. So he he does he storyboard the whole script or just com complex scenes? More you know complex scenes, and then he's doing his own storyboards for himself, and just so he knows the cutting. He's very, very delicate, you know. He knows because the way he's cutting, he know exactly. He have to know exactly where he's coming from and where he's going to because it's not like an over and over, do 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 long lenses stuff like that. You know, all the camera is moving all the time, so you have to be sure where you're coming from. And he knows that he's so well prepared, so it's scary. And he illustrates his own storyboards. Yeah, but it's not a storyboard like that. It's just drawings. You know, it, the quality yeah. of that is very different. I think how depends how busy he is. Uh, sometimes it's very high quality, and sometimes it's just some small drawings. You know, we're coming from here to there, and you know. But he's he knows exactly what he wants to do. 
Tell us about segueing over to Hollywood. Was it through Guillermo or was it on the remake of uh, Night Nightwatch? Watch? It was Nightwatch. Nightwatch. We did Night the Danish Nightwatch, and then Ole Bornedal, um, who's the director on that, um, he asked me to do come with him to LA and do or to the United States and do Nightwatch, uh, and that was great for me. You know, I've got a couple of other offers, but I didn't want to move there. You know, my kids were small and stuff like that. So, but for Nightwatch, we moved over here. You know, for half a year and shot that, and that was. Uh, that was great, you know, it was fantastic. And then the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. That was another story, but that was in Prague. We shot that fun, we spent nine months in Prague there. It was a big movie. It was a big movie, yeah, fun movie to do. There was some problems now and then, but you know, it was, for me it was a fantastic because it was a big, big movie and you know, it was Sean Connery's last movie. And I think Stephen Norrington was fantastic, you know, he's a really, really smart director. Uh, and it was a huge movie. The Danish Film School have, children, have learned me a lot of stuff. You know, I'm coming from a small group of people who worked together with them for many, many years. Um, but then Dogma movie come into Denmark, you know, and they spoiled a lot of... It was good for some people, but, you know, I'm not a big fan of that kind of stuff. You know, I'm not a big fan of... I want to be... That's the reason I like... I love to work together with Guillermo, because, you know, we want to tell the story. Nothing is by accident. Everything is planned, you know... If the light is coming from the right, it's because we want it to come from the right, or you know, if the camera's moving, whatever. It's not by accident. So aesthetically speaking, what for you was the biggest difference between Crimson and Shape? Like what what was 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 he still was he still emphasizing shadows in that movie? Yeah. I think you know there was for me the biggest different was the size of the movie, the money we have to spend, you know, we, we couldn't, there was a lot of stuff we couldn't afford on Shape of Water because the budget was tighter, you know, we couldn't put catwalks up, so all the lighting was, you know, more complicated, you know, because, and especially then in the, in the lab, you know, that was like 28, 30 feet high. Uh, and we, could have, we couldn't afford to put catwalks around there, you know, every time we have to go up and adjust the lighting. It was a little bit of a drag because we have to send a guy up with a lift and, you know, it was just, it, it was time consuming. Uh, and of course that's what's happening when you don't have the money. Now with the shadows, um, this will probably be my, my last question, but with the shadows in Shape of Water, when, when does he use them and how do you get around that when you're working with such dark colors? Like does he, does he like to use it in a way where where the bad guy comes in and the shadow is big and eventually gets smaller. No, it's not like that. It's not like the old. We try to do that, but we don't think it works. You know, we we was thinking about going back to that uh, Citizen Kane thing. So, but you know, we didn't do that. You know, we was we was playing it like you know just contrasty and dark shadows, but it was not like long black and white Hollywood fifties shadows. We we. We played it more like, as I said before, you know, the actors have to look beautiful and that was very key for us, you know. All the scenes have to be very atmospheric and, you know, dark shadows, but not in that way, you know, you did it in the in the 50s where hard shadows, that will work pretty well if it was black and white, but I don't, we didn't thought it would work on the colors. So we didn't, that was not the way we want to go. Now there's a musical element to the movie yes. too. 
what were some of his notes on that? Was it was he referring to Ginger Roger Fred Astaire? Was he? I, I think he was, you know, or he was, you know, uh, but that was shot in color, and we did that black and white in post. But we did that on the set, you know, we just pulled the colors out and on the DRT world, um, and everything is, is shot on the Technocrane, and you, we shot that on a half a day, a three quarter of a day, you know, because we. That was great. Thank you for listening to the Crew Call Podcast. To ensure you never miss an episode, make sure to subscribe for this and all other Deadline podcasts in the Podcasts app, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next week.